a tremendous relief for me. Um, I'm finding that uh, finding a new respect for my wife and uh, just trying to prepare a sermon and child care and home care and everything else is uh, is pretty <laughs> let's just say it's it's hard work. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to thank you all for the many cards and that you have been to us. Um, and I also wanted to make note, I don't know if you noticed, like during worship, just hearing the children praise the Lord in this sanctuary. So many churches, the families come in and they divide, and there are no children's voices during worship. What a joy that is to hear kids sing praise the Lord. Well, this is the, the time that we get to look into the Word of God, and it's a, a privilege that we get to do so, uh, not only because we have the Bible in our own language, and keep in mind there are some 1,800 languages in this world that doesn't have a Bible in their own language, but we also have the freedom to do so. I mean, there are Christians all over this world that... And trying to gather like we are doing right here, they have to do so in secret and in hiding because of the threat of persecution and even death. And so with that greatness of this privilege on your mind, I want to hopefully make your hearts more full of gratitude and invite you to open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 11 this morning. Luke chapter 11. We're going to be looking at a text that many of us probably have memorized in some fashion from, and more so we probably have it memorized from Matthew chapter 6. But the text we have before us is called the Lord's Prayer. Now there have been countless sermons preached on this one portion of scripture, including many from our early church fathers, such as Origen and Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, Tertullian, Cyprian, and even Augustine, who preached and wrote an entire book about the Lord's Prayer. Even the fathers of the Reformation, including Luther and Calvin and many others, have written volumes of exposition on this one portion of Scripture. And so we're going to start to take a look at it this morning. I've got to confess to you that I did not get very far. Uh, but we're just going to add the, to the chorus of voices that have attempted to plumb the depths of this text and ascend its heights. Now, you may have be thinking to yourself, you know what, if I've heard one sermon on the Lord's Prayer, I've surely heard enough. But Thomas Watson, he wrote in his book on the exposition of the Lord's Prayer, he said this, quote, as the moral law was written with the finger of God, so this prayer was dropped from the lips of God. And so its immensity and its richness and its depth of this prayer comes because of the nature of whose lips it came from, namely the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks on just these few verses, and many have. And I have to confess to you that as I was like studying this text like many other times before, I'm confronted with this great sense of inadequacy of what and how I need to teach this. And so I don't even want you to walk away today thinking that you've heard it all by any measure. My desire and my prayer for you is the same as what mine was, and that I want you to be more zealous 
for prayer. I want you to be more confident that you have a God that is a loving Father, and He wants to give you good gifts as His dear child. I want you to have your mind fixed upon the greater glory of God when you pray. So let's read our text this morning. In verse 1 of chapter 11, we're going to read to verse 4. Luke chapter 11, 1 through 4. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word if you're able to do so. Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 1, God's word says this. It happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished. One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we, also, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and its sufficiency Father, we just pray that it might instruct us and encourage us and spur us on to pray to you in spirit and truth, magnifying your glory upon the earth and looking for your greater good to be manifested across the world. Father, let our minds be instructed, our hearts encouraged, and we want to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we think about the, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we often think that it was a, a, a series of just miracle after miracle, teaching through parables, teaching through correction, as we saw the last couple of weeks, personal conversations with, uh, where he always just knew how to get to the heart of the issue with whomever he was conversing with all the way up to the cross. And then we might occasionally capture him engaging in prayer. But truth be told, just the opposite is true. His life was one of sweet, constant communion in prayer with the triune Godhead. And then the rest of his life was interspersed with these occasional miracles, parables, and teachings. Nowhere was the beauty of this frequent, intimate, communing prayer of Jesus within the context of the Trinity more evident and displayed for us than back in Luke chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, it said, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, proclaimed, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus prayed before the choosing of his 12 disciples in Luke chapter 6. He prayed before and after the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14 and 15. He was praying before his transfiguration in Luke 9. He was praying, it says, in the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 10 with exuberant praise and adoration to the Father when the 70 returned from their missionary journey. And we'll find him praying again and again before he raises Lazarus from the dead. At the Last Supper, when his disciples, uh, with his disciples, we're going to see him praying before he faces the reality of the cross. And even we're going we're to find him praying for Peter, whose faith in Christ is going to be tested as a result of that crucifixion. Every major event was bathed in prayer. 
But of all the gospel accounts that we have for us, Luke records for us nearly a dozen times where we find Jesus praying. Prayer permeated his life. Jesus in Luke 6.12 even went up to a mountain where it says that he spent the whole night in prayer to God. It's as if he had this greater desire to pray than he had to sleep. Now I wonder, how many of us in this room could say that we have a greater desire to pray than about any activity that we do, let alone sleep? How many of us could say, I have a greater desire to pray than even just sit down and watch TV for 30 minutes? I have a greater desire to pray than surf the internet for just an hour. I have a greater desire to pray than, and to exercise my soul than I do spending time in the exercise of my physical body. But the Bible demands that of us and more. Did you know that there is no duty that we as Christians are to give so much attention to than as to pray? To be sure, our prayers, our prayer life needs to be informed by the Word of God. We wouldn't know to whom we are to pray and for what reasons and what expectations we should have if it's not instructed by sacred Scripture. The intake of the Word of God and praying, they don't live in isolation from one another. And I think that's why, in part, Luke has this account here just after the account of Martha and Mary. But the New Testament teaches that there is nothing that we should be constantly engaged in and give so much attention to as prayer. For example, Jesus told his disciples that they are to keep watch and praying that they may not enter into temptation in Matthew 26, 41. In Luke 18, 1, Jesus says that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Romans 12, 12, Paul says that we are to be devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says that we are to, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Colossians 4, 2 says that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul tells us that we are to pray without ceasing. Devoted. At all times, without ceasing, keep watch and pray. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the language of the New Testament, and it describes how your and my prayer life is supposed to look like. I wonder how many of us in this room this morning would say that those words describe my prayer life. I wonder who would be the first to stand up among us and say with confidence that those are the exact words that describe my personal commitment and my frequency to prayer. But why is it that we don't pray that often? Why are we so slow and so indifferent and even apathetic to prayer? Does it not have to do with how we view God? Maybe it's because we don't view God truly as faithful. Maybe it's because we don't truly believe that God is all-powerful. Maybe it's because we don't truly believe that He is all-knowing and all-wise. 
Maybe it's because we don't believe that God is a broad-shouldered God and he's strong enough to bear the burdens that we throw on him. Maybe the reasons we don't pray is because, honestly, that we think we can handle it ourselves. And maybe it's because we think that God should be on our timetable instead of his. Maybe, just maybe, it's because we have a defunct, deficient, and maybe a defective view about how great and how powerful our God really is. Listen to this. I want you to listen to what the Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote about the nature of prayer. He said, quote, To pray properly is not an easy matter. To pour out your heart and your soul before God to believe He hears and will come to help you to pray in faith and to wrestle with Him, to strive for a blessing and hope against hope, being delayed yet waiting for Him until He comes. This is exceedingly hard to be done. Our natural corruptions hinder us with dullness and hardness of heart. Guilt stabs our prayers and hinders our assurance. Our ignorance of the nature and the method of God hinders us from praying properly. We have a false image of God and view him more like one of us and not filling heaven and earth with his majestic glory. Though he is good to us, our prayers are weak and cold. We view delays as denials. Our faith wavers and we are discouraged to give up. The difficulty of the things we pray for also hinders our prayers. Satan always labors to oppose our prayers. He knows that if our faith does not take hold of God, then God will not take hold on us. He strikes at this vital point, our seeking God. He fills our hearts with cares and temptations and discouraging thoughts of God to keep us from prayer. If we continue, he seeks to persuade us to despair that our prayers are even heard and that God does not love us. It is one of the hardest tasks in the world to pray with faith and feeling, end quote. But which one of us can say that when it comes to praying that we are diligent, we are steadfast, we are devoted? Truth be told, if you're like even me, with our hearts laid bare before God, We readily confess that we have much work that needs to be done in this area. We have so much that needs to be taken care of in our own lives in terms of our prayer life. And so when we come to this, we identify with the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 and 24 when he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me into the way of the everlasting. And so it's with this plea and it's with this mindset that we come to this portion of scripture right alongside the disciples. And we say to the everlasting God, teach us how to pray. Teach us how we ought to pray. You could say this is prayer 101 for them and for all of us. So verse 1 of our text this morning, it says that it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Now, if you remember from last week, Jesus was in that home of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, 
back in chapter 10. And although Luke never mentioned where exactly that was, we know that it was the town of Bethany from John 11. But Luke didn't tell us that, and it's not necessarily important where they live. But here again, Luke just tells us that the disciples and Jesus were in a certain place. We don't know exactly where this is, but we know it's in the region of Judea. Remember that snowman I talked to you about. You got Galilee for the head, you got Samaria for the body, and the bottom part would be Judea. As Jesus was uh, lived and taught in Galilee, he's moving down into Judea, and that's where we find him today. But we find him praying once again. Now, a lot of times, Jesus had to seek some solitude to pray. He had to get away from all of the hustle and bustle of his ministry so that he could engage in quiet devotion and prayer to his Heavenly Father. And if you ever try to talk to someone on the phone, and another person comes in and interrupts you, or this kid's yanking at your leg, right? It's not easy to talk to the other person on the line. And it's aggravating sometimes, isn't it? And so Jesus had to get away from all the chaos sometimes and pray alone. Mark 1.35 tells us that he got up early while it was still dark and went to a secluded place to pray. But here in Luke 11, at this time, he's praying near his disciples and they're catching on that this guy is a praying man. I mean, there is something different about this guy and the way that he's praying to God. Because these guys would have been very familiar with the Old Testament prayers of the saints. They would have known how Isaac prayed for Rebekah in Genesis 25. They would have been familiar with the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. They would have been familiar with the great prayers of Moses and Jonah and David, Nehemiah, Ezra, Daniel, and so, so many more from the Old Testament. But sadly, they would have been very familiar also with the ceremonial, rote, lifeless prayers of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the rabbis of the day. Men who stood on the street corner to be seen by men, as Matthew 6 described them, so that everyone could see their piety. Essentially, they're stage performers. Their prayers were ritualistic, repetitious, and meaningless. And so these disciples knew exactly what bad prayer looked like. And so when they heard Jesus praying, when they heard the Son of God praying, they knew that there was something different. Their ears perked up for the first time in their life when they heard someone pray who actually knew God intimately, passionately, and deeply. Their minds probably were abuzz and their hearts probably raced for the first time when they heard these words that fell from the lips as he enjoyed and delighted and praying to his heavenly father. These disciples knew that these were true words. They were pure words and they were God glorifying words that came from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Have you ever met an older person that actually knows the Lord Someone that you find that just loves Jesus. They've been walking with him for a numbers of years. And aren't you and I just like drawn to them? You just want to spend time with them. You want to almost like sit at their feet and learn from them and get to know what they know a little bit. Well, this is true of these disciples as well. When they encounter Jesus praying, they knew something's different. They could tell that he actually knew God and being familiar with John, teaching his disciples how to pray, 
the disciples asked for the same instruction. And so Jesus gives them a surprisingly simple answer, full of divine truth, but it is nonetheless radical. Matthew Henry said that this prayer is remarkably concise and yet vastly comprehensive. In verse 2, he said, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now, first of all, we need to understand that this is not a prayer that needs to be recited word for word. A lot of Catholic churches, Orthodox churches, this is what they say word for word. But they actually do the Matthew 6 version. And as I mentioned, that version records for us how Jesus taught the disciples, and that is what people use in their services for liturgy. And if you notice right off the bat when we've read that, those of you who have the Lord's Prayer memorized, Matthew's version begins with, Our Father, and then adds, Who is in heaven. We like to say the King James Version, don't we? Who art in heaven, right? And after your will be done, there's that after your kingdom come, rather. But we're missing something here in Luke. Some people have suggested that Matthew's prayer is the true Lord's prayer. And that Luke's prayer is in error since it seems to contradict one another. And they're not exact copies. But that's not the case. The simple solution is this. Jesus taught his disciples how to pray on more than one occasion. See, the prayer in Matthew 6 was on the Sermon on the Mount in Galilee. We are in Judea. But Jesus taught them more than once on how to pray. And this really shouldn't surprise us because good teachers usually try to repeat and emphasize certain things to their students, but they often phrase it in a little bit different way. And if there was ever a group of students under the sun, S-O-N, right, that needed to hear things more and more on more than one occasion, it had to be this group of disciples, right? We can think about Philip in John 14 when he asked Jesus to show him the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus replied back to him in verse 9. He said, have I been with you so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, these guys didn't get it, right? They had to be taught again and again. I mean, you think about them coming into Samaria and trying to find lodging for Jesus. And he reports back to them, hey, they told you, no, you can't come because you're on your way to Jerusalem. He wants to call down fire from heaven. No, actually, no. They just don't get it. They're a little slow sometimes. And so as we look at this prayer in Luke 11, and we compare it to the one found in Matthew 6, we can sort of get the picture that Jesus needed to teach these guys a pattern for prayer on more than one occasion. They needed to hear it again and again, how they were supposed to pray, and not necessarily the exact words they were supposed to pray. But if it's true of those disciples, guess what? It's true of us as well. We constantly need to be instructed and exhorted and encouraged again and again and again, do we not? But we we also notice in just this first line that just like the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments that we read this morning, how it begins with a Godward orientation, so should our prayers begin with a Godward orientation. Our prayers should begin in vertical praise to God for who he is and what he's doing. 
I try to do, do this even when I give my testimony. I, I try to first other the words. You say, hey, give me your testimony. I try to say, God saved me from the world. I don't start with, well, I was in band camp in the sixth grade and I was playing the flute and whatever, right? I say, God saved me from the world because it is he who began a good work in me. And it is he who first loved me before I loved him. And so when I give my testimony, I try to give God rightly the honor that he is due. I try to give him honor first above all things. And so I try to say that God saved me. But that's exactly how our prayer should begin. We first focus on God's glory. It should begin by affirming the supremacy of God, and then we can pray about our needs. But honestly, the entire prayer, it's going to end up glorifying God anyway when he answers them, right? When he gets the glory, when he actually provides for our needs. So first, Jesus teaches the disciples and us that God is the source of all our petitions, and we can address him as Father. God is the source, and we can address him as Father. And beloved, in time constraints, this is as far as we're going to get today. To be honest with you, I could have preached the entire sermon on the beauty and the intimacy of being able to call God our Father. This consumed my study and my week, and I don't think I'm even going to be able to do justice today on it. But the first thing I want you to understand is that when Jesus was teaching the disciples that you should begin to address God as Father, that this was totally a radical departure from what they had been taught. In the entire 39 books of the Old Testament, God is addressed as Father only 14 times. And in those 14 times, it's always done in an impersonal personal way. And it's used to describe God as a Father to the nation of Israel. But never, nowhere, no how, was any Jew ever taught to address God as Father, and no one ever taught it in the history of Israel, such as in the Talmud and all the extra writings, no one was ever to address God through prayer as a Father. In fact, one German scholar, I believe his name was Erasmus, he found in all the examinations that he could look into, all the writings of the Jews, it wasn't until the 10th century in Italy that he found a Jewish rabbi writing and teaching people to address God as Father in prayer. And so, to begin with, this was a radical departure from anything that these disciples had been taught. But not only that, we have recorded in the New Testament several of his own prayers. And in every prayer that he prayed, and every prayer that Jesus Christ prayed, minus one, he addressed God as his Father. And that one prayer that you're wondering, what was it that he didn't address God as Father? Is when he is on the cross, and he is dying in agony. And he's hanging there and he's dying for you and me and bearing our sins and the full wrath of God on your shoulders. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even before he goes, he cries out to the father one more time. My father, my spirit into your hands I commit. 
But Jesus, he used the term father more than 60 times in the New Testament. And no one had ever, ever spoken this way to God before as father. I want you to think about this with me for a moment. I want you to think how radical this is for you and I as well. Does the father love the son? You would say, absolutely, of course he does, right? John 3.35 says, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. John 5.20 says it as well. Now, when did the love of the father begin with the son? And to this we say, it was part of his very nature, and it always has been. There was never a time, if we could count back into eternity past, where the father did not love the son. No angels were around. Nothing was created. The world had not been made. In eternity past, when it was God and God alone, and there was no earth yet formed to garner his attention, the self-sufficient, the self-sustaining, self-contained, triune God of the universe existed in perfect, pure, eternal, immutable love. And we're not just saying that it was an act of God expressed on the Son, but what we're saying is that it is intrinsic to His being. It's part of His nature. God is love, 1 John 4, 8 tells us. It's not simply that God loves the Son, but it's part of His nature. It's all He can do. It's who He is. He defines love. He is the rule and the measure of love. And I also want you to dwell on the purity of that love that the Father has for the Son. And we would say that had to be the purest of love. And I want you to think about the eternality of that love that the Father has for the Son. And you would say that it was from everlasting to everlasting. It never had a beginning, and it's never going to cease. And then I want you to think about the immutability of the love the Father has for the Son. We would say that it is never going to change. It's never going to be altered. Now I want to ask you this. Does the Father love you? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you love Him, that same undefiled, immutable, pure, eternal love of God belongs to you. And it was an incredible act of mercy on God's part. John 16, 27 says, For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. The only way to truly experience the love of God is through the Son. The only conduit that in which the love of God is going to flow down to us is through our love for Jesus Christ. And that love that God loves you with is a most gracious love. You and I didn't deserve it. There was nothing in us that garnered the attention and the affection of God. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved. God so loved you with such a great and enormous love that he was willing to send that which he loved eternally and purely and immutably to come and rescue you and me from his wrath, namely his son. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. The infinite, almighty, all-wise, all-knowing, all-supreme, self-sustaining God of the universe who loved the Son from eternity past with a purest, immutable, and holiest of love now seeks to be so intimate with you as believers and to express His love to you in such a high order that He gave you His Son. That Jesus would instruct His disciples to tell us to pray to God by addressing Him like He did as Father. Think about that. Jesus is saying, you get to enjoy the love with which I had with the Father. The the enmity has been taken away. The hostility has been set aside. The wrath of God has been appeased. The veil has been lifted because you believe in me, because you love me. And now you can address God as a Father. This is breathtaking. This is incredible. Think about that. Have you ever been tempted to doubt the love of God? Have you ever just sort of just threw up your hands because your world seems to be falling apart and your kids are getting sick all the time and your house is falling apart and everything keeps collapsing around you and coming at you and you just don't know which way to go? Have you ever had one of those moments? I have. Then I want you to dwell on the fact that the Father who loved the Son with that purest of love, that greatest of love, sent Him to suffer and to be mocked and cursed at and to be spat upon and was ultimately crucified for you and me so that through Jesus Christ we might be able to enjoy the love of God and have intimacy with the Father. And there is nothing that is coming upon you, whether it's tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Those are all bad things, right? Probably much worse than any of us are really experiencing. But there is nothing that is going to separate you from the love of the Father to you. And so Jesus teaches his disciples and he teaches us to address God as father through prayer, just as he himself addresses God as a father. And by doing so, we acknowledge that he loves us with the purest of love. We acknowledge that God is the source of everything. Listen, when you address God as father, When you are addressing the all-powerful, all-wise, the limitless God of the universe, you are guaranteed access to every resource available. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 3:20 tells us that we are he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. There are absolutely no big things to God. There is nothing 
that is too big for him to handle. There is nothing that's going to cause the sweat to beat on his lip. His arm is not too short to reach out and grab hold of what he needs to grab hold of. His arms are not too weak to lift up whatever it needs to lift up. And so I want to ask you this morning, what is your biggest burden that you are carrying on your heart? What is the thing that consumes your thought life and gives you greatest concern? What causes you the most worry and anxiety? Maybe it's your own sin. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your finances. I want to ask you this. Is there anything... That's too difficult for the Lord. Anything. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we dwell upon the fact that Jesus instructs us to approach God through prayer, as we would approach a loving Father this morning, I want us to do so in gratitude and in worship that He would grant us such a high privilege to call Him Father. Let's pray. Lord, we readily confess that we don't trust You as we ought to. We let the cares of this world so easily entangle us and snare us. And we just pray, God, first of all, that you would make us a people of prayer, that we would be known as people who pray and who know our Heavenly Father. God, our hearts need filled with your love sometimes. Things weigh us down, burdens, But Lord, let us look to you, for you love us and you care for us. And we thank you for the high privilege that we can call you Father through prayer. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.